This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. The story here is about political power. It is not about legal doctrine. The fact that all of these cases that we're talking about, all these big hot button issue cases are going to seem to the press like they happen out of nowhere is embarrassing. Because everybody convinces themselves that legal reporting is hard and jargon laden and complicated. And so an immense amount of time is spent translating. What gets lost is the stories. And it shouldn't take the level of Dobbs for us to have our radars go up and say, oh my God, this is horrifically affecting real people. They are the story, not the justices, not the decision anymore. And we need to be on the ground covering them. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. And this week we sit at the very top of the Helter Skelter looking down at all the twists and turns that come with the month of June and what that will mean at the high court. We are going to be coming to you weekly until the Supreme Court term wraps up sometime in the last days of June. And our Slate Plus members are going to have access to emergency episodes analyzing the biggest decisions as quickly as Mark Stern and I can wrap our heads around them. Like this week's decision in Sackett versus EPA that is bad news for wetlands and those of us who like clean water and good news for polluters and developers and the people who love them. Slate Plus members were able to access that conversation between me and Mark from Friday. There are lots of benefits to Slate Plus membership, like bonus segments from your favorite Slate shows, including the new season of Slow Burn, which just happens to be all about one Justice Clarence Thomas. Slate Plus members listen to all of Slate podcasts commercial free and they never hit a paywall at Slate.com. You can find out more by going to slate.com slash amicus plus to sign up. That's slate.com slash amicus plus. And thank you for supporting the work we do. Let's head to our main event. Slate Plus members will have access to an extended version of this conversation. Earlier this week, Mark Stern and I were joined on stage live at Washington, D.C.'s Six and I by Jay Willis of Balls and Strikes and Ellie Mistal of The Nation for a kind of soul-searching conversation about how to cover the Supreme Court. Beyond our journalistic mea culpas, this was really a mental reset to kick off the next few weeks of SCOTUS frenzy. A reminder that we can and must do better at telling the story of what this Supreme Court stands for and the consequences of reporting on just the trees and not the forest. This is kind of the capstone of a package that we have rolled out all week long. I hope you're all reading it. It's called Disorder at the Court at Slate.com. If you have not had a chance to check it out, Please read it. I recommend that you do. Mark Stern's piece about the cases we missed, Molly Olmsted's unbelievable reporting on the lives directly affected by Supreme Court decisions that we forgot to take note of. I wrote about watching the growing disorder at the court in real time. 
The impetus for this package, for this event, is in fact the sinking feeling that we have had that we're doing it wrong. It's a sinking feeling that has come up in conversation at the magazine, in the world over the last couple of years, but it is certainly a conversation we have had over and over and over again with our esteemed co-panelists. And I have to confess, it's more than just a sinking feeling, it is a set of facts that we need to adjust to so that we can better serve our listeners and our readers and the country so that we can do our job of speaking truth to power and so the justices can do their job of figuring out how to listen. With me here on stage is the great Mark Joseph Stern, Slate senior writer about the courts and the law. He is the sassy flight attendant. <laughs> and he is, bar none, the world's greatest producer of bird TikToks. We're joined by Ellie Mistel. He's the justice correspondent at The Nation and author of the best-selling... Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. It is a book uh, that you all must have. And Jay Willis, Editor-in-Chief of Balls and Strikes. And in, in many, many ways, I just want to credit Jay with being one of the people who really came up to me figuratively and was like, do it different, uh, and forced me, who's been doing this the same for a long time, to rethink some of what I do. So welcome, all of you. It is such a joy. We want to thank Six and I and our amazing team at Slate. And let's just jump in. Um, I wonder if um, you, Ellie, want to start just helping diagnose how we got into this crazy Patty Hearst coverage of the court where they say no and we say thank you can I have some more yeah <laughs> yeah so one of the big reasons for why we are here is that we have um, been uh, given terrible press coverage of the third branch of government I have a Kermit the Frog in Muppets Take Manhattan view of things right we need more bears and dogs and cats and chickens of things to be in the show, and in this context, that means to be covering the Supreme Court. You cannot be in Congress and have a low-level subcommittee hearing that doesn't break with 50 reporters sitting outside of your, of your door, asking you what just happened, why you said what you said, what's gonna happen next. That's for something low level. If you look at the debt ceiling kind of coverage that we have right now, these people can't go to the airport without just a trail of reporters just following them behind. Samuel Alito took away abortion, and most people wouldn't know it. Most reporters wouldn't know it if he was standing behind them in the publics. Like, what is that? The simple lack of coverage of what these people do. The fact that reporters are not lined up chest deep, three back, outside of their house for every single day between the Dobbs leak and the actual decision was a travesty. The fact that we don't have people lined up in front of Clarence Thomas's house so that he can't go to the wine tasting until they get answers about his relationship with Tarlin Crow is embarrassing. And the fact that all of these cases that we're talking about, all of these big hot button issue cases, are going to seem to the press like they happen out of nowhere is embarrassing. And that is all because we simply do not have enough people 
and enough people with enough knowledge actually covering these people and trying to tell the American people what they're trying to do. I think we should encourage Clarence Thomas to drink as much wine as possible, though. Go to that tasting, buy some, have a cigar while he's at it, you know? It's a super wine tasting. Um, Jay, I wonder if you could sort of build this out a little bit, because I think one of your critiques isn't just um, you know, Ellie's point that uh, we cover the justices with too much reverence and too much silence, but also that we cover the whole institution as though it's made of magic and ponies. And uh, that, you know, I, I, and I pointed this out in my piece this week, but I, I think it'd be useful for you to sort of spin it out for us. The mere fact that the Dobbs leak the Ginny Thomas, Mark Meadows texts, the Harlan Crow story, the Leonard Leo paying money to Kellyanne Conway to direct to Ginny Thomas while Shelby Don't County. say Ginny. Don't, but don't say Ginny. <laughs> the, the, the actor formerly known as Ginny Thomas, but all of this, these stories are broken by ProPublica. They're broken by Politico. They're broken by New York Times investigative reporters. Like, there's no beat to do the thing that is being done now by people from some other beat. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think a lot of this goes back to the composition of what I would refer to as sort of the legal press corps, and in particular, what I would refer to as the establishment or legacy legal press corps. The people who are on this beat are mostly lawyers, right? Former lawyers. Uh, they tend to be mostly men, mostly white men, uh, mostly on the older side. <laughs> Crushingly heterosexual. Yeah. <laughs> all, all of that's right. It's a very particular group of people who, number one, bring like a certain worldview to their job and who also view their job as sort of unpacking, distilling, technical, intricate language for a lay audience. And I'm not saying that it's not like important to explain a Supreme Court opinion, but I'm saying that when you are zeroing in so hard on the precise like doctrinal method that the court deployed to get rid of the Voting Rights Act, you tend to miss uh, facts like the court just got rid of the Voting Rights Act, <laughs> right? And, and, and that the court has been paring back the Voting Rights Act for 20 years now, at the very least, since John Roberts was confirmed to the court. That is, in my view, sort of the biggest through line of the Roberts court, for what it's worth, is the extent to which it has been firmly, uh, unrelentingly anti-democracy. But when your job is just sort of to, like, crank out the 600-word opinion recap that, you know, you're on a three-hour deadline once the opinion comes down, you maybe don't have time for that, or you don't think that's most important. And that's kind of a shift that I would like to see, is more reporters who put these cases in their political, cultural, and social contexts, and fewer people who tell me, like, what strain of originalism this one is. Yeah. To back up the technical point, I just want to say, like, at most major media organizations, if you switched out the Supreme Court desk with the NASA desk, and just... Did, you know, did a Freaky Friday with them, people wouldn't notice the difference. 
because it's mm-hmm. the, it's the same mindset of just like oh my god it's a planet in space and like there's physics and Newton and and oh my god it's like a document from like Jefferson and it's like physics and like it's the same thought process for how they cover both of those those beats yeah it's science reporting mm-hmm. and 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 our work rightly and wrongly is translating and I completely concur, Jay. I remember at one point thinking, you know, we would get more animated at the Supreme Court press room about, like, oh, did you see what happened to the dormant commerce clause today? <laughs> like, that was a day. And meanwhile, you know, like, there's stuff happening. And, and, and uh, Mark, it does raise this question. One of the deep embarrassments, and I personally am am embarrassed, is that some of this Leonard Leo, Harlan Crow stuff was disclosed in 2011 and 2012 and 2007. I mean, this is not new. And I feel like we thought it was somebody else's job to cover the big golden spigot that went from Harlan Crow's backyard into uh, the pockets of Supreme Court justices. And I'm just wondering how, I I mean, I feel like we were so blindsided that now as it's come up and people are saying, well, this is new, this is not new. We just didn't write about it. So, you know, as you wrote in your brilliant piece on this, the Supreme Court press corps comes to feel like actual employees of the institution, right? If you Mm. work for the Supreme Court, press corps and you go into that building all the time, you get Stockholm Syndrome. You are Patty Hearst. And you start to feel like, yeah, these are just like nine brain geniuses who totally get it. And they're writing these interesting opinions. And it is a brain puzzle. And it can be fun. Like, I liked the Dormant Commerce Clause case a few weeks ago. Who among us does not (laughs) love the Dormant Commerce Clause? It's... (laughs) It's kind, I have to say, like, if you like brain puzzles, it's kind of intoxicating. And so if you combine the fact that you're in that building and you just feel like you're getting this access and you feel like you're becoming part of this very special rarefied world, and then you, you, you combine that with, you know, this is interesting stuff, you can sink your teeth into it. There are, in fact, some cases that are not really political where you can kind of work your way through and it's interesting and you read the briefs, whatever. You forget what your job is. And we've had that problem before. I think we've, you know, talked about it a lot in this package that we published. Um, I I don't want to name names on on this stage again, but, you know, I think most mainstream Supreme Court reporters have fallen into this trap where we're explaining the decision in a way that helps the maximum number of people understand what happened. We're doing so in a way, typically, that sort of respects what the justices wrote and takes it at face value. And that is wrong. That is not how people cover the executive executive branch. That is not how people cover the legislative branch. When you cover Congress, you you work really hard to get behind the scenes to figure out what's happening. What are the deals being done behind closed doors? When they say this on committee, what are they really talking about? Um, it's more than just like, oh, I want an off-the-record lunch with Brett Kavanaugh, so I'm going to say something really nice about his shitty concurrence. You know, that's just backlash management. Um, it, it's it's really, I think, uh, intense and, and a poignant and a decisive reporting work. We were not trained to do that. We were not 
taught to do that by the prior generation of court reporters, as much as I love many of them. And so I think it has been a struggle where like, I don't know, what is the a, a cicada coming out of its shell? Or maybe a more beautiful insect, a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. <laughs> We're working our way toward how we cover this like a government institution that deserves extreme skepticism that we should, you know, cover with uh, an understanding of our own opinion, that we should analyze very critically, um, and, and that we should not, like, pull punches when we're doing this, whether we're going on TV, whether we're writing, whether we're doing a podcast like today. We should say that we think that opinion was in bad faith and really cynical, and as interesting as it is to treat it like a brain puzzle, it's actually just a really sloppy partisan document designed to further the goals of the Republican Party. But Mark... <laughs> But Mark, I want to come back to Jay's point on that one, because I agree with what you're saying, but you're also making it sound a little bit benign, a little bit benign neglect. I think it goes back to Jay's point that we also are dealing with the, with the least diverse group of reporters of any of the branches of government. And so what happens when we're talking about some of these cases is, is that, especially when you look at the Supreme Court bar, like their rights are not the rights on the line, That's right. right? Like the people yeah. who are reporting on it for the most part, you see the difference in coverage when they start taking away women's rights, right? And you see the difference in coverage when, you, when you're talking about Dobbs because people are just like, oh, wait, that could be me. But when it's voting rights, when it's LGBTQ rights, when it's a lot of these other issues, when it's, you know, pig torturing uh, uh, issues, you don't have people who, like, come from that background who, 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 who have to worry, really, that anything that happens over on First Street is going to affect them personally, and so I think that it's not just benign. I think there's also, to Jay's point, that, that, that ossification of the reporting core as a whole, I think, plays a huge role into why the coverage is what it is. Time now for a quick break. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And now back to Washington, D.C., Amicus, the Full Court Press, with Mark Stern, Ellie Mistel, and Jay Willis. I mean, I would say this, and, and you know, I'm, I'm old so fight me. <laughs> um, but I think part of the way we got in this situation is that the press corps has sort of sublimated the Supreme Court's own anxiety about legitimacy. And that we sort of come to this job saying, the wor we all went to law school. The worst possible thing that could happen is to have a Supreme Court that is a joke. And we kind of are born into taking very seriously the anxiety about an institution that is a joke. And so in some ways, I think we overcorrect for it. And as a piece of that, Jay, I want to ask you, Ellie makes this great point that because everybody convinces themselves that legal reporting is hard and jargon-laden and complicated, and so an immense amount of time is spent translating, what gets lost is the stories. 
And the stories, I mean, some of the package that we put together this week that is so compelling is like, you may have missed this in a conversation about the Fourth Amendment, but here's a person whose life was irreparably damaged. I think we are now caught in this very strange loop where the stories are both everything and nothing. So we fall in love with a story. You know, here's an interesting story, 303 Creative. You know, here's a web designer. That must be terrible. Uh, and then we tell that story over and over again because that's how we translate. But the court is actually sort of helping manufacture fake stories <laughs> like Coach Kennedy praying privately on the 50-yard line. So I want you to help me pick through this question of, given that we're doing doctrine and story at the same time, technical jargon and like human interest at the same time, and to Ellie's point, we have to make it relevant and alive because it desperately matters. How do you pick your way through all of this complexity to give people something that is both true and that the scope of it is much broader than the scope we are now delivering. And I know that's a ridiculously complicated question. <laughs> that's a briar question, It's a really. three-part briar question, yeah. but you can just take a whack at any piece of that that you see fit. Yeah, I will. You guys have said a lot of smart things the last couple of minutes. Uh, I've still been stuck on Ellie's sort of NASA analogy because I've just been thinking about nine Supreme Court justices as nine planets. <laughs> and Who's which Pluto? one I want to be Uranus. <laughs> uh, we'll come back to that. Talk to me after the show if you want my full taxonomy. Um, I mean, I do think, right, that like if you're a legal journalist, a legal reporter, and the easiest way to explain what the Supreme Court is doing is like, what does the Republican Party want, right? Like, suddenly your job's not so special anymore. Um, but I also think that there's a real opportunity for sort of this different brand of coverage that we've been talking about. Because people, like normal people who are not Supreme Court reporters, are seeing the reactionary opinions the court is handing down. They are seeing just how much the justices love, like, billionaire graft, right? And they're upset about this. They are concerned about this. They understand that this is not the way things should be, for lack of a better term. And we see that, right, in the court's plummeting approval ratings, its trust ratings, not just after the leak, not just after Dobbs, but they remain at historic lows. And I think there's a real opportunity for reporters to cover the institution in sort of the more adversarial manner that has previously been reserved for president, uh, for the White House, right, the executive branch, and for Congress. At some point, my question is like, who are you still doing this stenography for? Like, nobody wants this except you in your imaginations. With respect to like, yeah, some of the, the stories that come before the court, I would like to see more reporting on, for example, right, like, uh, uh, Mark, I'm sure you've got something reserved for a uh, friend of the show, Lori, the web, the web designer. Yeah. But like sort of going beyond these like, you know, taste soft lit YouTube video clips of these <laughs> poor plaintiffs who just want their rights to discriminate against LGBTQ people protected. I'd like to hear Jesus more. Jesus wants me to do it. What yeah. Yeah. Jesus and the long dead framers, uh, them together. <laughs> That's right. I'd like to hear more about sort of the 
the real engine behind some of these cases. Uh, I know we're going to get a little bit into them later, but I think in particular about, again, friend of the show, I assume, Ed Bloom, who is behind we're so like many... Like yeah, yeah, a Slate Plus member, I think. Uh, <laughs> he has been behind literally years of challenges to affirmative action policy. And my best guess is that he's going to get his way this year, but the previous sort of iterations of his attacks on these... He did not give up, right? He sort of rejiggered his arguments. He found new plaintiffs that he thought would be more sympathetic. And he came back until he got a court where he could count to five votes. Like, Ed Bloom is like a a former stockbroker from Texas. Like, who is this guy who is so passionate about making colleges and universities less diverse? I want to see the reporting on that, not like on exactly how the court disposed of his latest Hairbrain challenge. And just to just to back up on that, like if you think about think about all the coverage that there was of Grover Norquist, mm-hmm. right? Think about how well known that person is as a person who drives Republican deep state policy, right? The Republican think we we all kind of know his impact. How how much reporting was there if you're of a certain age? Um, was there on Ralph Reed, you know, and his Christian conservative movement to take over the Republican Party. Ed Bloom is that guy from affirmative action and like eight people know who he is, right? Like the, the, the Leonard Leo is, oh my, Leonard Leo's the goddamn emperor, right? And people are all just like, man, that Moff Tarkin is a problem. Like, no, like he's not your problem. Like your problem is the, is the guy behind the curtain. And only recently, I mean, really only in the last two, three, four years has Leonard Leo been a name that I can say in public and reasonably expect people to know who the hell I'm even talking about, right? So when we talk again about the lack of reporting on the Supreme Court, it's also this aspect of only reporting on the case in front of them as opposed to digging deeper and thinking about how the case showed up in the first place, which again, if you compare it to congressional reporting, is not what they do. They, know, they don't say, oh, here's a Patriot Act. That's really interesting. Let's look at, let's look at the pros and cons of having a... No, they're like, 9-11 just happened. This is the response. Like They do all of the work so that by the time you are reading the, the ins and outs of the congressional fight around the Patriot Act, you know the entire history of how it got there, who wanted it, who voted for it the first time, who was for it before they were against it. You know all of that, right? But you don't know any of that for abortion rights, for voting rights, for gerrymandering, for affirmative action. All of that gets lost in the question of, as Dahlia would say, just translating the technicalities of what they actually said about the case in front of them. So, so Mark, I want to turn to, yeah, I want to turn to, there has been, in my view, one huge counterexample to all of this, which is abortion, which is in the almost year since Dobbs, we have had at least weekly, sometimes daily, reporting on actual people who are actually in catastrophic trouble, actual lawsuits like the Mifepristone suit, which we didn't wait and say, oh, a baby bird, it's at the Supreme Court. We covered it from the second it was hatched in Amarillo, Texas, which never happens. Never happens. We covered the spots of it. Mainstream news covered the spots of where that court case came from, who was behind it. So it seems to me that 
you can talk for a minute about whether that is the dawn of a new era where we start to cover cases, not the day that the court grants cert, but we start to cover some of these themes we're talking about. Actual vulnerable people are being harmed, which we see every day. This case was you know, hatched in an underground lab to be a test case for something that is going to the Supreme Court. And can we learn something from the post-Dobbs reporting to kind of operationalize to solve some of the problems we've laid out today. Right. Well, I think the issue is that Dobbs is one of the worst things that the Supreme Court has ever done. Um, just, you know, it in one fell swoop stripped equal citizenship and reproductive autonomy from half of the population in a way that was snide and misogynistic and weirdly sort of pissy, even though it was the victorious culmination of 50 years of work or more. Um, and of course, when you do that, the consequences are horrific and immediate. And they also affect people who you know, you and you and you, like Dobbs is coming for someone in your family or your friend or someone who lives in Texas or Mississippi or Louisiana who has, uh, you know, some emergency at 18 weeks of pregnancy, but there's still a heartbeat and their doctor says, sorry, you have to develop sepsis and start hemorrhaging before I can legally terminate your pregnancy. That tends to get the press attention especially when it's a rich white woman and I think that one of this one of the things we've seen after Dobbs is a lot of these stories that are getting reported brilliantly and beautifully in the press are well-off white women in places like Texas who thought to themselves well yeah I live in Texas but I go to this fancy medical center and all of my doctors have a million degrees and I pay a bunch of money for this terrific insurance. So there's no way that they would let Dobbs kill me. And then Dobbs almost kills them. And so, you know, I think that the press has treated this as the emergency it is because it's hitting home. It's vivid. It's graphic. It's appalling. And it frightens me because not every horrible decision is that bad. Not every horrible decision has such obvious, catastrophic, real-world effects. I think voting rights is the quintessential example. You are not hearing when a 90-year-old black woman who survived Jim Crow and is descended from enslaved people is turned away from the polls in Florida because she could not get the proper voter ID. You are not hearing about entire communities of native people in Arizona who cannot get their ballots to the polls because Republicans passed a bunch of suppression laws that just took away their ability to do so. That is not as horrific as a woman crashing on the table and being told by her doctors, we just have to wait for the ethics committee to decide that you're really dying and then we'll give you health care. So, you know, in some ways I think we can learn from what Dobbs has wrought and how we have covered it. I would like for us in the press corps to take those lessons and apply them to these other cases. This is something that we do in our package that Molly Olmsted does brilliantly in a case about the death penalty. Um, and in a case about workplace discrimination, you know, to you, to us often, a, a case about workplace discrimination is about the ins and outs of Title VII and the EEOC's religious liberty guidance. To this family, it was about a woman with breast cancer being fired and dying without a job or health insurance. We should be telling those stories, and it shouldn't take the level of Dobbs for us to have our radars go up and say, oh my God, this is horrifically affecting real people. They are the story, not the justices, not the decision anymore, and we need to be on the ground covering them. Yep.
Ellie, I, I wanted to a- actually ask you the flip of that, which is, you know, in the just galactically horrible cases that came down last spring, I would put, you know, EPA, I would put Bruin, I would put Coach Kennedy. I mean, there were a lot of them, and it felt as though Dobbs got all our attention. And I'm wondering, did we see in the past year a hundred pieces of good, longitudinal, thoughtful storytelling about the EPA or about how schools are going to figure out whether students can be coerced into praying on the football field or about gun laws that are being struck down around the country because, you know, they didn't have women's shelters uh, at the time. And so I wonder if what Mark is saying, which is like, holy cow, Dobbs is the outlier, is borne out in terms of the other cases that happened at the end of last term that were in many ways just as bad. 100%. That's going to happen again this year. And I think that this goes to the problem of translation, right? One of the weaknesses of the Supreme Court reporting court, and just one of the difficulties of our job, is that the law by its nature is adversarial which means there's always an argument on the other side. In fact, to be in law school, to be trained as a lawyer, means that you can probably argue the other side, right? I can argue against myself pretty easily, actually, right? And not, not because my arguments are weak, but because <laughs> I know how to do it. Like, I, I, know where the, I, I know where the bodies are buried, right? That's what I've been, that's how my brain has been trained to think. So now you take a regular kind of, person with basic legal training reading a Supreme Court decision, and what you're going to see is, is this both-sidedism, right? This, well, some people, you know, Justice X says one thing, but Justice Y says the other thing, and who can know the difference? Because if I made an opinion, that would be inserting my own personal politics. Just because you can make an argument on both sides doesn't mean both arguments are equally good. <laughs> and I think that we see this with the coverage of gun violence and the coverage of the Supreme Court's Moloch-like obsession with the Second Amendment. Yes, you can make an originalist argument for the Second Amendment. It doesn't mean it's a good argument. And it doesn't mean that simply parroting the, the Republican Second Amendment ar- argument absolves you of your responsibility as the reporter to tell the people what's really going on, right? So you can say, Clarence Thomas believes that we cannot have gun laws unless they're exactly the same kind of gun laws that they would have had in 1877. At the same time, 50 children died today. So maybe we shouldn't be so overly concerned with Clarence Thomas's 1787 view of gun rights. Like, you can have that in the same argument. In my personal work, I do not find it hard to explain the conservative argument and then explain why it's the worst of the two arguments available. Usually. Sometimes, takings, I get a little bit republican but... Again, that's for after the show. (laughs) We are going to take a quick break. And now let's return to Amicus, the Full Court Press Edition with Mark Stern, Ali Mistal, and Jay Willis. We are well aware that we are acting as though we're not just barreling into the end of a term here, and that some of you were probably 
accidentally stumbled in here thinking we were going to do one of those end-of-term reviews, um, of which there are 2,000, I assure you, happening around the city. But we did think maybe one way to deal with the fact that we actually do have massively consequential cases uh, barreling down upon us might be to sort of model how we would think about covering the cases that are about to come down in a way that reflects some of the ethos that we are trying to inject into the discourse. And so instead of just hearing affirmative action is going to come down one side, the other side, who knows? <laughs> Odds are we would like to try to think about that in a way that is a little bit broader and more complicated. And um, Jay, I wonder if we could start with you, if you could talk a little bit about there are some pretty darn important voting rights cases that, you know, could end section two of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, can you think about how we could better report out in the coming weeks the consequences of some of these cases? Yeah, let's see how, how quick we can do a quick and dirty version of Merrill. I'll sort of leave more v. Harper aside for now. Number one, because there's a decent chance it gets kicked out, mooted. And number two, because there's only so long that I can talk about how democracy is fake before you like get up and leave and like <laughs> walk directly into traffic. Um, so Merrill is a case about redistricting in Alabama. More specifically, it's about Republicans' responsibility to provide black Alabamians with what's known as a meaningful opportunity to elect representatives of their choice. This concept flows from the Voting Rights Act, which acknowledges that in many states in this country, voting is racially polarized. When I say many states, you know which ones. Um, All of them. <laughs> uh, so the way the Voting Rights Act deals with this is it contemplates majority-minority districts, districts in which black Alabamians comprise a majority so that they can elect who they want for context so you can understand how serious and how grimly predictive this is. I believe the number of black candidates who have won a congressional election in a majority white district in Alabama is zero, okay? So Merrill is about how many of these majority minority districts there need to be. Is the answer two or is the answer one? I'm gonna cut it off there because like, I don't think you need to go much further into sort of the technical intricacies of this particular case. What I want reporting to focus on is something we discussed a little bit earlier, which is Milligan's place in just this unrelenting series of cases that the Supreme Court has handed down, especially over the past 10 years, since Shelby County v. Holder in 2013, that are paring back the Voting Rights Act to basically nothing. Gotta go back in time a little bit, right? But it's the 80s, right? Reagan is president. How do you say this? Hair is big? Is that what the 80s was? <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't alive. Um, Ouch. Yeah. Uh, Shots fired. One of, one, one of the uh, sort of the hottest young lawyers in D.C. is this guy, John Roberts, who famously writes these memos as a member of Reagan's Department of Justice about how violations of the Voting Rights Act, and I'm quoting here, should not be too easy to prove. This is not uh, a policy view that John Roberts has relaxed on over the rest of his career. 
he is unrelentingly on the side of eroding away the Voting Rights Act. Now, in a typical voting rights decision, you might see Shelby County mentioned, right? Like, oh, this has been a, a sort of a trend lately. I want that to be front and center, that this is part of a decades-long conservative effort to make elections easier for Republican politicians to win and easier for them to hold on to power. That is the story here, not like the precise application of whatever the fuck the jingles test is. <laughs> I've never bothered figuring it out. Um, the story here is about political power. It is not about legal doctrine. Mark, I wonder, I wonder if you can do the same jujitsu for 303 Creative, which, again, uh, has been the story of a story. Um, but I wonder if you could tell us how to better think about it, and I'm going to use the word frame, how to better frame it, uh, going into the end of term. So this is a fake case. This is not a real case at all. So this is a case about a website designer named Lori, friend of the show Lori, who makes very bad websites by herself for like dog breeders, local Republican politicians. I unfortunately looked at her gallery and my eyes are still burning. I look um, too, it sucks, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she claims that she really wants to make wedding websites, but doesn't want to make wedding websites for same-sex couples because that would violate her religious beliefs. And so she, represented by Alliance Defending Freedom, which was the group behind this medication abortion suit out of Texas that we've been alluding to, she filed a First Amendment lawsuit in federal court in Colorado arguing that this boring, vanilla Colorado civil rights law that's just like any other civil rights law violates her free speech rights by forcing her to create a custom wedding website for same-sex couples in violation of what she thinks Jesus whispers in her ear every night. Here's what you need to understand about this case. No one has ever asked her to make a wedding website, ever. No one will ever ask her because she sucks. <laughs> Certainly not gay people. <laughs> like, come on. Like, re real clip art ass websites. I can't stress this so, enough. So why, you might ask, does this case exist? Well, here's why. Because there have been a bunch of cases like this before. The cake case, right, where he wouldn't sell the cake. The flowers case, where she wouldn't sell the flowers. The photographer, she wouldn't take the pictures. Well, in those cases, you had victims. And who were the victims? The people who faced discrimination. And the coverage of those cases and the way they were presented to the court, there were two sides. There was the sweet, sincere Christian who just wants to do what Jesus tells her, and then the couple who wanted some respect in shopping for wedding services and was told, sorry, too bad, because of your identity, I'm not selling you anything. And that was a real problem in some of these cases, like Masterpiece Cake Shop, you may remember, you know, that couple was on the steps of the Supreme Court. They got their own profiles. They were very clearly like the victims in the case, and Jack Phillips' team, that was the baker, he also sucks, by the way. Um, <laughs> He had to work really hard, represented by who? Alliance Defending Freedom, to make himself seem like the victim. So what's the genius of this Colorado case? Well, 
she has never been asked to make a website, so there is no real victim. So she gets to play the victim. She is the aggrieved party. She is the person who goes into court and cries crocodile tears and testifies that her feelings will be so, so, so hurt if a gay couple asks her to sell them a website and she has to do it. And that has worked in the media. I don't know how else to say it. That worked. Go online, Google Lori's shitty website, and you will see like dozens of pieces in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, in CNN. They sent their photographers out there to take pictures in her shitty little studio with like live, laugh, love quotes on the wall. And they had the softest lighting and she had the big Winnie the Pooh eyes. And it was like this poor, poor woman is having her rights trampled upon. And it it fucking sucks that it worked because it's 2023 and we should be doing better about this. And so that's kind of why, like, when I was talking about Dobbs, I had this case in the back of my mind. It's like, well, you know, it turns out it's pretty easy to trick the Supreme Court press corps if you just manufacture the case and you have total control over the players. And so, yeah, when that decision comes down, and I'm sure it will come down on the side of, of Lori slash Karen, like... Do not fall for the narrative, please, because it's untrue, it's a fake case, and this is simply a vehicle to manufacture an excuse for this Supreme Court to open the floodgates of legalized discrimination against gay people. Ellie's literally doing this. He's like, oh, just wait. (laughs) Ellie, I'm going to ask you to close us out by treating the affirmative action cases to the same kind of power wash we just got in terms of where we went wrong, how we could do better. Yeah, so uh, this term... The Supreme Court is going to overturn affirmative action and is a one of those 50-year-long projects by the Federal Society and the conservative media to overturn this policy. The affirmative action has been more or less the most successful racial social justice policy in American history since emancipation. But whatever, they're going to get rid of it. They don't like it. Most of the coverage is going to be about the history of race-based admissions. You might get a little coverage on uh, pitting race-based admissions versus uh, uh, legacy admissions and something like that. As we were talking about earlier with the kinds of people who generally report on the Supreme Court, what you're going to have is a lot of people who's like, little Timmy got into Dartmouth instead of Harvard. (laughs) Probably because somebody black (laughs) got in instead. And they're going to write their narratives about what happened in this case. This case has nothing to do with race-based admissions. It has nothing to do with racial discrimination. The record of the case actually shows that the aggrieved party, this group of uh, AAPI students who allegedly were discriminated against uh, because of race-based admissions, actually weren't discriminated against. Like, just on the straight facts of the case, the suit against North Carolina, there was, they literally found there was no discrimination at North Carolina against AAPI students. AAPI students are more likely to get in the University of North Carolina than black students. At Harvard, where I went, they actually did find a thing that maybe could have possibly discriminated against AAPI students. Ain't nothing about affirmative action. It's a score that the heart that Harvard uses that's like based on like your guidance counselor and your rec letters and like Asian American students were scoring lower on those rec letters probably because of racism. But after they overturn affirmative action, they're going to still be able to use the racist thing that was actually hurting AAPI students, but they're going to take away affirmative action. Again, 
from a coverage perspective, all of this will be out there and I will write some, something you know, at some point about some of the legal ins and outs of it. But my first story about this is gonna have nothing to do with any of that because the affirmative action case comes down to two men who, at Bloom, who we already mentioned, who made, his, made it his personal mission in life to overturn affirmative action. And he's got this case. He's behind the two Amy Fisher cases that were the most recent challenges to affirmative action. For whatever reason, he really doesn't like it, and he's going to win. And Clarence Thomas. And what you're going to find is a lot of predominantly white reporters really shying away from this aspect of how does the second black Supreme Court justice in history become the one to overturn affirmative action? Because it's either going to be his majority opinion or Roberts will take it from him. It'll be Roberts' majority opinion and then Clarence will write a concurring opinion. He's the guy who's also made it his life's mission to do this. And when I write about it, I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm going to, I'm just going to moderator's prerogative for one second, which is, you know, we opened up this conversation with Ellie saying, you know, why are we not chasing down justices? I just want to point out that sitting for an interview with Harlan Crow, in which he tells you that he really doesn't like Donald Trump and that he and Clarence Thomas talk about like sports and Motown but not the law, also suggests that there is a little space in here for some reporting, some meaningful reporting on people like Ed Bloom, like Harlan Crow, like Leonard Leo, that maybe the fact that they are like the gods who walk amongst us is another piece of this beat that we can reclaim. I just want to say this has been like fun and funny, but also I think for all four of us, deathly serious and kind of straight into the veins stuff we want to think about. And we invited, when we ran this package, we invited people to let us know how we're doing and we really mean it um, we feel like we're laying down the track for this as we go so we want to thank all of you for being part of that I want to thank from the bottom of my heart the best guests in the world Mark Joseph Stern Ellie Mistal and Jay Willis and they're great and I'm not reading their bios again please stay with us on the show through June for Opinion Palooza Amicus is going to be coming every week and there will be extra extra updates with me and Mark as we try to figure out what's going on for our devoted Slate Plus listeners. We are really going to try to stay true to this commitment of covering the court differently, better, smarter, more open-hearted, while also picking through the avalanche of cases that are headed our way. We would love if you would join us if you haven't already. Until then, we cannot thank you enough. Take good care. And that's a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. And thank you so very much for your letters and your questions. You can keep in touch at amicus at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham with live production assistance from Patrick Fort. Special thanks to the folks at Six and I. Executive editor Susan Matthews was absolutely indispensable in putting together Full Court Press and the Disorder in the Court package online at Slate. 
Slate's director of media relations, Katie Rayford, masterfully corralled the live show into being. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio at Slate. And Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. We will be back with another episode of Amicus in just one week. Until then, hang on in there.